This is the California Liberty Project Podcast. Welcome back to the California Liberty Project Podcast. This is Greg. I'm very glad that you have joined us this weekend for yet another episode. Make sure to like and subscribe and follow us um, on all of your main podcatchers, of course, Apple, Google, Spotify, and then Instagram, even Twitter as well. And then we have the brand new YouTube and Rumble channels that we are loading most of the videos to, the ones that won't get pulled down, at least off of YouTube. But it's been a very eventful few weeks here in California, as it almost always is. I mean, there was the start of the legislative session. We're tracking that. We're watching that carefully, very closely. We're going to see what kind of comes our way here in the coming months and, well, weeks, months, uh, the rest of this year. We'll keep our eye on that. We'll have some guests. We're going to discuss what's going on in Sacramento. But there's also a lot going on in the natural world, weather-wise, meteorologically, Of course, you know, it's national news, and it's definitely state and local news here within California that throughout most of the state, especially up north, along the northern coast, the coast ranges, and central California, we have just been getting deluged and pummeled by rain. Now, everyone's going to be screaming and freaking out and saying that this is so unusual, this is, um, you know, it's because of climate change or global warming or whatnot, But as Californians know, this kind of thing and these kinds of really rainy and wet winters are not super uncommon. I mean, some places have gotten tons and tons of rain. Um, You know, records are set. Records can be broken. But once every decade or so, sometimes even two times a decade, we have these really, really wet winters, even more than, than usual. And of course, Californians and people who have visited California know that we only get rain essentially in winter and spring, uh, for the most part. We never get rain during summer, for the most part. If you look at historical rainfall averages and norms for June, July, August, they are extremely low. Um, Some parts of the Central Valley and mountains, and even out in the desert to a certain extent, although they can be affected by monsoonal moisture in July and August. But if you look at those um, averages throughout the year, it's very usual for there to be 0.00 or trace or 0.01 inches during summertime, you know, during July and August in particular. That's not at all unusual. The dry season in California goes from May to September. Um, And most of the state, of course, during that time is getting virtually no rainfall. That is an average year. So keep that in mind. That's, That's just getting things set. So counter to the narrative and the alarmists and the propagandists and the corporate media and those in government who want to use a so-called crisis or a big um, rainfall event during wintertime, they want to use that to control you. So counter to all that and the fear-mongering, we know, set it up right away, May through September, California gets no rain. Okay, and then we're having a rainy winter. Fine. Um, Some places have seen records set, and, you know, as I mentioned, that is what it is. But the problem is that In between these so-called emergencies, you know, whether it's a drought emergency or whether it's this massive rainfall and flooding emergency in certain parts of the state along the coast or even in Merced, um, you know, there's always one crisis going on. You know, we swing from one crisis to another, but in between those times, nothing gets done. Nothing is done to solve the problem. It's virtually impossible to build new massive civil engineering projects such as new dams, new reservoirs, that's very difficult to do. Now, in some cases, that work is being done. But generally speaking, you know, that's always fought by environmentalists and NIMBYs and people who really are not true stakeholders, um, by and large. I'm not saying 100% of the time. A lot of people have interests in what's, what's built, but not by property owners. So a lot of these dams, a lot of the reservoirs, which would really help this problem, not only for flood control, measures, but also just in terms of saving up water for dry times, for the really, really dry winters when we don't get much precipitation, which happens again a couple of times a decade, it seems like. 
you know, these types of measures are not being undertaken. And even storing water um, in aquifers and then pumping that water back out, it's highly regulated with a complex and Byzantine array of different regulations and state law. It's very difficult for the state's farmers and ranchers at this point in time um, to deal with the water situation. And pumping water out of your own wells now, uh, there's been a big change in recent years, and now it's, it's highly regulated as well. Even desalination plants, um, which should be kind of a slam dunk type of thing, you know, if we're not going to be um, kind of troglodytes or luddites, if we would build those, that solves the problem. That shuts everyone up. See, the problem is these alarmists can use these times um, that we're looking at, these so-called crises, or even just rainy winters or droughts. They use these to their advantage to control the population. And we're getting used to being controlled. Californians are very used to it. But what we need to do is basically tell our representatives what we want built. If we want more reservoirs built, if we want access to our own wells, you say you are a rancher or a farmer, tell your representative. Um, desalination plants, all of those need to be on the table. That can solve the problem. We need better water storage, better water policy. I'm not saying that I have the answer. The great news is someone like me or you or the governor, any one person doesn't need to have the answer because truly free citizens work together unfettered by government regulation and by tyrannical or Byzantine law and other policies. Truly free people would work together in a market and figure out water delivery systems that work best for the citizens of that state. And that's what we're after. Not just one solution, but an organic and kind of a homeostatic, a dynamic system, essentially, of uh, different solutions that work for different people all over the state. And that's really what we need. We get into this mess largely because uh, we are not prepared for these natural ebbs and flows for Mother Nature um, throwing different amounts of precipitation at us. And that happens in California. It definitely can be feast or famine. And that's what we're dealing with now. It's even making national news. And people are wondering, how could California possibly be in this flood emergency or this big water and rainfall emergency? Next, it'll be mudslides. How do we have those kinds of emergencies paired with a drought emergency or certain areas of the state having these water restrictions and, and water problems. Well, welcome to California. Um, so we'll continue talking about that, that situation, but um, it's definitely vexing. It's uh, more than just annoying. It, it really creates big problems when government gets involved with hyper-regulation um, and, and prevents massive infrastructure from being built or even private projects from being built or implemented. And then we end up in these kinds of situations. So at any rate, that's going on. We're facing uh, an egg shortage, an egg crisis. I don't know if you've been into a grocery store lately, but the price of eggs is insane if you can even find them. Um, you know, and that's allegedly due to this avian flu um, for whatever that's worth. I think that might be something that's a national problem, but certainly in California, the laws that mandate and dictate that all eggs have to be labeled, uh, at least as cage-free, um, you know, those eggs have to be raised in certain conditions and then certified probably by some government inspector or whatnot, just interfering in, in market processes. Well, that certainly is not helping things um, at all here in the state. So you can actually go into your grocery store, as I did just uh, a week ago, and you could see Soviet-style conditions. It's not toilet paper that's missing from the shelves. It's now eggs. And the eggs are sky high if you do find them. So good luck with that situation. Another fun thing, um, now that gasoline prices are coming down, finally, um, another fun thing we get to deal with are sky high gas, natural gas prices in this state in particular. Um, and that's due to California-specific problems, regulations, government-caused situation. Just as the price of natural gas seems to be falling or is relatively low elsewhere, we have these incredible price spikes to heat our homes, to heat water and whatnot during wintertime 
welcome to California. Uh, that's the insanity. So if you look at your natural gas bill from PG&E or SoCal Edison or, uh, or the gas company, rather, because um, those are essentially little monopolies that the government has set up. But, you know, and that depends whether you're in Southern California, Northern California or whatnot. But look at your gas bill wherever you are in California. And if it seems to be like double or more of the cost of last year's bill at the same time in January, well, you can thank California government. You can realize that that's happening here in California, not necessarily in a lot of other states. And I'll get into some specific reasons why um, sometime pretty soon. But for today, I wanted to get on to our guests. We have some great guests, and let me go ahead and introduce them now. So today, I've got two guests, actually, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. My guests today are Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus, and they have a podcast. It's called the Reformed Libertarians Podcast. It's another relatively new podcast. You should definitely check it out on all podcatchers. And Carrie is also on the Dare to Think podcast um, through Mere Liberty. And I want to welcome both of you to the podcast here today, and thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having hey, us. Hey, thanks for having us. So um, would each of you give us just a, a really quick kind of um, background or introduction to yourselves, um, you know, as far as your work and what it is that you do in the liberty movement and um, maybe also in the reformed liberty movement, as it were? Sure, I guess I'll go first. Um, so... Uh, I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I've been a libertarian since mm, 2008. Yeah, 2008 um, with the Ron Paul revolution. Uh, um, I am the proprietor of the website mereliberty.com. And as you mentioned, my podcast, Dare to Think. Um, my work really focuses on um, a, well, currently a libertarian theory of reproductive rights. And of course, that relates to abortion. Um, I'm probably best known for my debate at the Soho Forum with Walter Block, um, where I narrowly lost by statistical dead heat. Uh, um, but I also do work with the Libertarian Christian Institute um, and co-authored a book with them called Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. And it was LCI that uh, got us started with the Reformed Libertarians podcast. Um, I've been reformed since, what, 2012-ish. Um, so uh, at any rate, Gregory and I have known each other for about six years, and uh, it was uh, a logical, <laughs> logical fit for, for him and I to do the Reformed Libertarians podcast. And that, that's only about um, a few months old, correct? Yeah, we launched in November, so it's, it's still very young. Very good, very good. And Gregory, um, if you wouldn't mind, tell us just a little bit about yourself and your background. I'm living in the Susquehanna Valley of Pennsylvania. That's kind of central-ish PA. Some people call it uh, Pennsylvania. Got a lot of uh, Amish around that kind of thing. You can imagine that. It's the um, ridge and valley of the Appalachians. So very idyllic farmland between hills. And uh, But I was born and raised in Baltimore. I'm more of a city guy. Spent most of my years in or around urban areas. Spent a number of years teaching English overseas. So I was in number of different countries in Asia and then in, in Europe. I'm somewhat of a lifetime student. I, I didn't intend for that to be the way things went, but uh, I'm doing it now. I'm back at my master's degree in philosophy, working on a thesis, and I'm waiting tables <laughs> and... Uh, trying to do other semi-academic kind of work on the side. Um, I became a libertarian anarchist in 2008. Before then, I had sort of been a constitutionalist and 
it's mostly through the influence of people associated with the Mises Institute, Rothbard and Roderick Long, Jared Casey, guys like that. Uh, what else? What else can I tell you? I've been. Uh, ref- I was. I was born and raised uh, in the Reformed faith. My parents uh, became Christians in their sort of their college years and met in a church and married. And I was raised in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. That's a very small, uh, confessional sort of old school Presbyterian denomination. And it's probably in my early high school years that I became more conscientiously sort of theologically minded reformed in my explicitly reformed in my convictions did a lot of theology reading that kind of thing and so when we when we talk about um reformed um for all of our for all of our viewers listeners and whatnot is that pretty much exclusively calvinist in nature i mean is that is that can that be boiled down to calvinism um and is it mostly presbyterianism in terms of uh, churches that one might attend now here in in the u.s yeah, Calvinism is sort of a nickname that uh, Reformed churches took on. Uh, you could say it began following the Lutheran Reformation, uh, began in places like Switzerland with Ulrich Zwingli, and uh, he, he was the same generation as Luther, a number, number of other guys in that same generation who ended up sort of coalescing together separate from the Lutherans. Hmm. And right. of course there was, there were some other groups that uh, didn't end up in this reformed category, the Anabaptists, for example. But during the time of the reformation, uh, yeah, all the churches that ended up identifying as reformed, including in Scotland, that Reformed Church took the name somewhat distinctively as Presbyterian. So Presbyterians okay. are part of the uh, broader Reformed movement. And I would say what sets off Presbyterians in the British Isles was the fact that they were, it was sort of a linguistic uh, cultural geographical designation. So you have your French reformed, your German reformed, your Swiss reformed, your Hungarian reformed, and the uh, English and Scottish and Irish were Presbyterians. They were the yeah. It's, thank you for that clarification. Yeah. Um, so let's let's dive right in. How does that tie in then to? I love the name. It's very interesting to me. Reform Libertarians, uh, the new podcast. Um, it sounds like certainly there's going to be a hook there tying back into to your faith. Um, and maybe there's a bit of a double entendre there as well. So tell us about the podcast and about how you came up with the name and what are the themes of that podcast? Well, uh, not to dominate this part of the conversation, Carrie, you, you, you jump in when I leave something out. But uh, yeah, so the name Reformed in Reformed Libertarians is intended to refer directly to the kind of Christians we are. So we are Reformed Christians. We are uh, libertarian anarchists, but instead of saying the Reformed Christian Libertarian Anarchist podcast, we thought it would, you know, be simpler sure. <laughs> to say Reformed Libertarians. Right. And if that has a uh, accidental connotation for we are bringing a different perspective on libertarianism. Well, we are doing that, but I mean, if we're, if we're, if it also sounds like we're somehow reforming libertarianism, that's okay. Uh, but it, re- but it really right. reform r- right. refers to our religious convictions and the perspective from which we understand libertarianism. So real briefly, if, you know, we agree on what libertarianism is with all other libertarians, namely uh, commitment to self-ownership, property rights, and the obligation that flows out of that being the non-aggression principle uh, to not initiate coercion against others, other persons or property. 
So that's how we define libertarianism. And that can really be understood in terms of any number of different, you could say, worldviews or philosophical convictions about the nature of the universe or whatever. Uh, Someone conceivably could be a libertarian, um, I don't know, for maybe it just sounds good to them or something. I don't know what, whatever, <laughs> some sort, some sort of unreflected sure. reason. But as reformed Christians, we understand those commitments yeah. to be rooted in our most basic understanding of and commitment to beliefs about God and the universe and salvation and so on. And so I think the uh, the term Christian anarchist, you know, for some listeners that might be like, whoa, what's that all about? But of course, I've, I've kind of talked about some of those themes in previous podcasts. But um, of course, there there's no there's really no um, contradiction there at all. I think I think the three of us would would certainly agree with that. Um, anarchism is not just meant to be left wing bomb throwing or terrorism on the streets or chaos. Certainly. I think we would agree that it uh, it's really meant to be for most practitioners or adherents. They would want the opposite of chaos and terror and oppression. Um, but Christian anarchism definitely has a very interesting ring. Um, let me and let me ask both of you. Maybe I'll throw it to Carrie. Um, even from the definition of libertarianism that that Gregory offered, and I tend to agree with, can there be libertarian anarchists or anarcho syndicalists who? unlike the three of us, don't believe in private property rights? Well, I would say that what libertarianism tolerates is voluntary communities. Uh, um, So if a group of people who want to, you know, share their property, uh, um, as long as force isn't being used, that's that's something that uh, libertarianism tolerates. In other words, there's no... There's no explicit prohibition that uh, people voluntarily get together and, and operate on the principle that they don't own any of their property um, or that they own some parts of their property and not others. Uh, um, I think Roderick Long offers some interesting arguments um, about common property uh, that I think are in line with Rothbard's view of private property. Um but yeah, it, I don't think it's, so I think it tolerates it. It tolerates it in a way that anarcho-communism wouldn't tolerate anarcho-capitalism. Uh, um, so yeah, I think it's, I don't want to use this word superior, but maybe it's superior. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, well, it's, that's all what it's always kind of struck me. Anarcho-capitalism seems to be the most liberty-based um, kind of s- system, or I don't want to say system, but strain of anarchism. And I know there'd be a lot on the far left who would disagree with that. You know, they'd say that, oh, private property ownership is oppression and, you know, you're, you're slaves, you're wage slaves. But of course, anarcho, anarchism or anarcho-capitalism, if you, if you use that term, it would certainly allow for these voluntary associations, um, as you were alluding to. So if people want to peacefully enter a covenant community where they, they share property and they all work in a factory that they all equally own, um, I think that would be fine under an anarcho-capitalist system um, without sounding too much like utopian myself, you know, talking about this system. Um, well, I like, I like to point to uh, Rose Wilder Lane's, um, oh, gosh, I don't think it's, the discovery of freedom, but it might be, there's another one that she, uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> another little book that she wrote. Uh, um, and in it, she describes her experience in, uh, the Soviet union. And she was talking to a family who, uh, <clears throat> were Christian and basically communist. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were much more of an anarchist strain, al- although they probably wouldn't have described themselves as, as anarchist, but they were absolutely opposed to the state communism um, because that was trying to control their lives in a way that um, not, not only was invading their, their own life, but it didn't work. Um, now, she points out in that, in that narrative that 
they had a functioning society. Um, it was not technologically advanced. So I think you would find that in uh, more anarcho-communist or anarcho-socialist communities. They're, they wouldn't be technologically advanced. Um, and, you know, if people are okay living like that, then they should be free to live like that. Um, I think it's worth pointing out, though, that it's distinct from state communism. Yeah, that's right. And true communism, I guess, theoretical communism, um, it would be a stateless society, right, where they've already worked through the socialist um, phase of history onto the uh, the kind of end of history, you know, which would be the stateless um, yeah. paradise for the workers. That's sort of their that's sort of their end goal, but they feel like they can use the state to achieve that, and that's of course why they keep failing. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> the dialectic always kind of teeters on that one side of state oppression somehow. Right. Yeah. Um. So, talk to me more, um, maybe Gregory and or or Carrie about the link between Christianity and liberty, and of course, let me toss out. As Christians, let me toss out um, something that's often discussed, and I think you've discussed it maybe in some of your work, Romans chapter 13, um, you know, which of course is always kind of thrown back in the face of, of libertarians or anarchists who happen to be Christian. Um, you know, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities and so forth. And so how do, how do, how do you square your Christian beliefs um, with Romans chapter 13 and and libertarianism or even anarchism. This is Gregory's favorite chapter. <laughs> awesome. So <laughs> this is this is my favorite chapter. I had forgotten to give a sort of uh, summary about what our podcast is doing. We we have a little mission statement so to speak. We aim to educate and inspire our listeners to embrace and promote a view of libertarianism as grounded in the reformed faith and informed by a reformed worldview. So it's about, you know, so we're educating, inspiring, hoping that uh, people will come to embrace and promote libertarianism from this perspective that we're, that our podcast is about in terms of explaining one of the things we start out explaining, you know, we have a sort of a basic introduction, <clears throat> excuse me, basic introduction in episode one. And in episode two, we jump right into Romans 13. So go listen to that, uh, reformedlibertarians.com. And we have our episodes listed, you know, after that you can do like a slash and then zero, zero two, it'll bring you to that episode. And what we try to explain there is that perhaps the default view of Romans 13 is one that is at odds with a historical and we say confessionally reformed perspective. Confessionally just means in the reformed churches, we have a statement of faith that sort of uh, lays out what Reformed churches believe. Basically, it's a statement of what they think the Bible teaches. So these are known as confessions. They're, they can also be understood in terms of creeds. Maybe people have heard that word. Uh, for sure. example, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. These are statements of Christian faith. And so in the Reformed churches, we, we have these statements of our belief what we believe the Bible to teach. And in that, in those confessions, they touch on what the Bible teaches about uh, civil governance, particularly with reference to Romans 13. And the understanding there is, is that when that passage refers to what God has ordained, that this is not, uh, it, it may sound like it's referring to in the first two verses or the first verse or the first and second verses, it may sound like it's referring to, the term could be just de facto rulers, whoever happens to be existing, claiming power, 
it sounds like maybe that's what it's referring to. But as the other verses go on, you can recognize very clearly that what God is ordaining is a particular office. And by that, we mean you could think of it in terms of like a job description. So God is saying he instituted, he invented (laughs) this job description among human beings to administer civil justice, to punish civil wrongdoing and to defend anyone Mm -hmm. who might be a victim of that wrongdoing. So that's the kind of job that God has uh, put into human society for humans to conduct themselves in this way, to use coercion only responsively in order to bring about restitution by aggressors to their victims and Mm -hmm. not to do all the other things we see government doing, not to oppress people, (laughs) not to use aggression, not to initiate coercion against anybody. Not to run every facet of their lives. (laughs) Sorry to jump in there. Uh, That's right. That's right. Um, And so that's actually the description Mm -hmm. in Romans 13 to which in the first seven verses, that's like the sub part of the chapter um, to which God calls people to submit. It means cooperate with the administration of civil justice. And that's all that it calls for. So this definitely runs against some typical understandings of the passage. Any given, maybe at least evangelical church, and of course, we distinguish ourselves from evangelicals. But you know, you might hear, "Well, you got to do what the government tells you," and you know, the Bible says you got to submit. And, and you know, they might make the exception for, you know, unless they tell you to sin or something like that. But we don't, we don't think that's, we don't think that's how the passage goes. The passage is only calling for people to cooperate with actual justice, actual civil justice. And that's it. I was just going to say, and, and as we all know, Paul Paul wrote this 1950, you know, almost 2000 years ago, um, pre-state, right? Before there was this idea of a state. Now, of course, there was the Roman Empire or there was this, you know, ancient, ancient world empire, but the state as it is now that does coerce us and enters every part of our lives and tells us to do this and tells us what medicine to get or what we can discuss with our doctor and on and on and on. None of that existed. And I think it would be an alien concept, even for those living under quasi persecution of the Romans, perhaps. Um, Go ahead. I just, I wanted to jump in with that. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah, they were familiar with a kind of tyranny that perhaps was more overt in the sense of Here is Caesar who Mm -hmm. identifies as a deity or a quasi deity, and he's requiring people to offer, you know, sacrifices, incense, prayers, some sort of tacit, you know, acknowledgement of his deity. And of course, famously, uh, before the Messiah came, the Jews had all sorts of problems with that. And in the you know, following the coming of the Messiah, the Christians couldn't uh, go along with that. So, uh, but all of this might raise the question, as you had asked, what, how then can we understand, what is the Christian understanding of liberty that plays into this? And really, it's very intimately tied with that idea of civil justice. It might be helpful to offer this distinction, which is an important one between morality in a, in a narrow sense and civil justice in a different sense. So morality in general, as it's defined by God's abiding moral will, uh, can be summed up in terms of love, right? So Christ said the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
and the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself in all these things, the, the law and the prophets uh, are summarized. So the morality is to uh, have that kind of good will, willing what's best for others, um, that benevolence of doing good, not wanting to bring harm or whatever to other people, uh, actively being charitable, et cetera, et cetera. So that's roughly how we can understand morality and the violation of that can be understood in terms of sin or perhaps even vice, you know, something, something along those lines. Um, if I have unbenevolent, if I have malevolent feelings towards you, if I'm envious towards you, if I, you know, hope that you fail, if I, you know, lie to you, if I'm deceitful in my dealings with you and whatever the case may be, is something that's, uh, you know, interact with you in an unloving way. Um, if I'm not going out of my way to help you when you need help, right? That's sort of, that's sort of unloving. Those are, that's vice that you know, we can, we can understand that in terms of sin. Now, civil justice is something distinct from that. And that is to give each person their due, right? What they're owed, our duty, right? So what people own is theirs and I should give that to them. That's what I owe them. That's my duty to give them what's due to them. That's the understanding of justice. And that might not be, you know, mercy or charity, right? Like if there's a beggar on the street and he's saying, hey, can you help a guy out? A couple bucks, some change or whatever. Well, that's not owed, right? That's not his property. The, the dollar fifty in my pocket is not his property that I owe to him, that it's my duty to give to him. If it was, that would be justice. If I owe it to him, then that's justice. But if I don't, and giving it to him is helpful towards him, that is love. Okay, so there's, there's a concrete example where we can see the distinction between what we owe somebody. You know, if I borrow a buck 50 from you with the promise of its right. return, <laughs> then giving you that buck 50 would be justice. Yes. But if you're just asking for it as a favor, that's love. So that, that's an important distinction. Now, so that's a, that's a Christian now, other, other people have recognized that, right? So, so Christians aren't the only ones who recognize sort of the love character of morality, the what is due character of justice. The, this is because God has created the universe this way. Even unbelievers, even non-Christians can sort of recognize these things, recognize that distinction. But the particular understanding that God made the world that way, that he wills love and justice uh, for human beings that he's calling them to that, that this is sort of a normative obligation. Uh, you know, we have a particular Christian biblical understanding of how those things are defined. And one thing that justice involves is to not aggress. That's what I owe to my neighbor in terms of civil, civil justice, that his person and his property or his or her person or property I'm not to initiate coercion against. And the only rightful use of coercion is in response to any prior aggression on their part. So my, 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 the only way I could ever use violence legitimately is say in self-defense or in defense of someone else or uh, in defense of rightful, pro rightful property. And uh, that is the liberty that people are owed. They are owed the liberty of not yes. being aggressed against civilly. 
And so this whole understanding of love, what love is, what justice is, how they're distinct, how liberty ties in with civil justice, that's a very that's that's some uh, reformed yeah. ethics, political ethics 101. <laughs> and we we tr- and, and how we relate that to our understanding of political philosophy, so to speak, and our understanding of you know the way we should people should interact together in terms of the question of uh, the use of coercion in society and respecting other people's property and how we're to cooperate and and that kind of thing. We're trying to lay out these very basic concepts and distinctions and explain them in terms of our libertarian perspective in the podcast. And there's a whole lot of things that relate to that, that we're trying to bring into the picture piece by piece and give people, you know, as, as solid a foundation as we can, hopefully without being too eggheaded about it or too technical or boring or luxury, but I feel like I took like maybe 10 minutes to answer your question. So no, no, I appreciate the thorough, the thorough answer. I mean, these, I like the eggheaded stuff too. You know, we, we need okay. to think through, you know, why it is we believe what we believe. Um, the Liberty Carrie, Movement needs upon, a few eggheads. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We can't all just be bomb throwers, but Carrie, right. let me, um, to kind of piggyback or to continue that discussion. Um, you know, we had mentioned Romans chapter 13, to me, to someone like me, and maybe to a lot of uh, other fellow Christians and, and lots of people in society, it seems like we're living through Romans chapter one right now, um, <laughs> as I see some of the debauchery that's happening um, throughout our society. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I see cycles in history and whatnot. I know this, is all, this has all been seen in the Bible before. Um, humanity has seen this kind of thing before. But people tend to, to um, I think, conflate too often libertarianism with libertinism and speaking from a christian perspective can you uh, can you address that um do libertarians need to embrace uh novel or radical or avant-garde lifestyles um is that a necessity must a, a libertarian celebrate libertinism and what's kind of the difference there i know you've uh, spoken about that before and addressed that yeah, so the short answer is no. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> actually, um, you know, libertinism is the idea that you don't have morals to follow. Um, <clears throat> you don't have to follow that uh, don't steal rule because that's somebody else's rule and you don't hold to that rule. Um, I'm of the opinion, I don't know how, what Gregory thinks of this, but I'm of the opinion that you can't be libertarian and libertine um, because it would, require, um, it would require the libertine to recognize the non-aggression principle. And mm. that is, even though that's a legal principle, um, if you violate that legal principle, there is a moral ele- an immoral element to violating that principle. Um, so I don't actually think that you can be libertarian and libertine. Um, I won't tell but- the reason magazine folks. Sorry. You could hold Sorry to-, to the non-aggression principle yes. and I guess be, you know, uh, immoral or let's say lax with regard to your morals as understood in a Christian sense. And then we sure. would still, we would call those people libertine, but they would still be libertarians. Sure. Yeah. So you couldn't be um, a total moral relativist. That's true. Yeah. It would be tough. It would yeah. be tough. Um, I think though, you know, the the question often comes up surrounding issues like drug use, abortion, prostitution. Um, you know, there's there's almost a caricature about uh, libertarians that all we are pot smoking. Uh, um, what is it? Pot smoking. Uh, I'm forgetting it now. Pot smoking, abortion loving, uh, you know, going out and having free sex, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, that that criticism comes from this idea that libertarians aren't moral people. They don't have a moral compass. 
Um, they want a live and let live society. They don't want people telling them what to do. Um, and you know, the non-aggression principle is useful in saying, okay, we're going to, or what we believe is that civil governance is strictly limited to, um, adjudicating, you know, uh, or getting restitution for acts of aggression and acts of aggression are prohibited. And so that, that rules out a number of, uh, a number of things in my opinion that, and Gregory agrees that that rules out abortion as being, uh, something Mm -hmm. that can be legally allowed in a libertarian society. Now, how we go about, uh, Dealing with abortion prohibition is another question entirely. I don't think that a libertarian view of, of abortion prohibition looks anything like the uh, conservative or Republican um, conception of, of, of abortion prohibition. I think it looks very different. Um, mm. So, I mean, that's a brief answer to that. When it comes to things like drug use and prostitution, those uh, we would categorize as vices. Uh, we would say they're immoral, um, but they aren't <clears throat> they aren't initiating aggression against anybody else. And of course, if a drug user or a drug dealer were to initiate aggression against somebody else in you know in their their practice of drug use, of course there's there's a law broken there. That's, you know, that's a violation of, of the non-aggression principle, but it's not the drug use itself. Same thing with prostitution. Um, and I just did, I just did an episode, um, actually I did a, a longer episode with the Libertarian Christian podcast on decriminalizing sex work and uh, did a sort of offshoot of that with my own podcast. Uh, Dare to think that episode just came out this past Monday. Um, but the issue with with prostitution is, you know, again, if a woman or a man is voluntarily participating in that, they aren't initiating violence against anybody. That just means that that's a problem not to be solved by civil government. It doesn't mean it's not a problem. It just means that's, that doesn't fall under the jurisdiction of civil governance. That is not something that we would use violence against in order to get them to stop. And, um, one of the points that is raised in that, uh, in that episode about decriminalizing sex work is that when you introduce violence into um, that sort of situation where you're dealing with vice, uh, it creates all new problems and all new injustices. And so, you know, as Christians, we can say prostitution is immoral, drug use is immoral, but... Um, is it really the the role of civil government to create injustice in the pursuit of getting them to stop their vices? And we would, of course, say no. Um, but that yeah. doesn't mean that we can't use nonviolent means through the market to uh, to try and help people uh, not do those things anymore. Yeah, and to get the state involved, I mean, I like all those thoughts, really interesting stuff. When we put the state in between these relationships or alleged crimes or these vices, then they are, they're basically erasing the chance for any, any organic civil society to take root in their tradition, um, whether it's Christianity or what have you, Judaism, whatever it might be. And I know in Catholicism and, and other branches of Christianity, there is this concept of subsidiarity. And just because we don't let Washington, D.C., um, you know, basically adjudicate prostitution, you know, these crimes, alleged crimes or what have you, or for me, Sacramento or your state capital in whatever state you live, just because we don't let some far off so-called authority step in and get involved, it doesn't mean that um, the parents, the family, the neighborhood, or the, the church community will not kind of adjudicate or offer some kind of justice, restorative justice or otherwise. Um, mm-hmm. and, it, and that's the way that I see it. it. It almost like 
astroturfs the whole thing. It homogenizes yeah. so-called society. And then we don't let civil society or churches or neighborhoods and families do their job at the lower level. Yeah. Well, let me give you an example with prostitution really quick, because um, in my interview with Melissa Brudeau, one of the things that she points out is that, um, so there's sort of this this move now um, to decriminalize the sale of sex, so on the part of the woman, um, but to criminalize and penalize the purchase of sex, so the demand, and this is called the Nordic model. And what they've found is that, um, and they, <clears throat> she cited a study in Ireland where they have this model, um, and the goal was to get men to stop purchasing sex, to create a deterrence, right? You're going mm -hmm. to be penalized if you're caught purchasing sex, so don't do it. That was, that's the, the legal principle there. Um, and so what they actually found was that the demand for prostitution did not go down. It stayed the same. Um, hmm. But it incentivized uh, an increase in antisocial behavior, which was just, okay, how do I not get caught? Hmm. Um, and that antisocial behavior contributes to the problem of abuse. And so, uh, and those women who were dependent upon that money uh, from prostitution, they can't go get regular jobs because, because of stigma. Um, the only way that they can survive is to lower the cost. Well, this is simple supply and demand principles here. You lower the cost and you encourage antisocial behavior. What are you going to get? A recipe for disaster. And the very women that you're trying to help out of that situation are going to be harmed more. Um, so, you know, that's not a system. One, it's not justice. Two, it's not rescuing anybody out of that situation. It's not helping those women get out of that situation, which is sort of the ultimate goal of the Nordic model. Um, but it, it doesn't help at all. Um, and so we should really be asking the question, okay, if the purpose of civil justice is to actually bring justice to situations, what do we say when those actions are creating injustice? Um, so Gregory, I think you were going to say something. Well, Greg had mentioned subsidiarity and I was going to hmm. jump on that topic a little bit, if you don't mind, brings, brings to mind the idea, and I'm, I'm going to botch the quote because I don't remember it exactly. Um, your listeners are probably familiar with it. Uh, Friedrich Bastiat from The Law, or yeah. maybe some other essay, where he says, we talk about not wanting the state or the government to do X, Y, and Z. And people hear us, they think that means we don't want X, Y, and Z to be done. And that's not what we're saying. So mm. he's, you know, even, you know, back then, he's at pains to try to explain his position that, look, I'm not saying functioning, well-functioning societies don't need X, Y, and Z to be done. So think of anything you think the government is doing that is ne that is really necessary for a for a society to have chances are you know we might agree with you all these things need to be done we just don't think any of them should be done by coercive means mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> it's so it's so hard to to get people to recognize we're saying we yes a society needs all these things to be done but none of them if they're not a matter of initiating coercion, they can't be responded to in terms of coercion. That's wrong. So yeah. um, the reformed worldview or tradition has a parallel sort of social teaching to that of subsidiarity, and it's called uh, sphere sovereignty, which may seem mm -hmm. a little weird. But it basically means sphere re refers to a kind of community 
right? So besides, let's say, civil governance institutions, there are other kinds of communities in society. Mm -hmm. And right. you can think of those in terms of the basic institutions of churches and marriages and families and- yes. De Tocqueville you know, bit, mentioned all these, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, so, so they've gone by a host of different characterizations, what all these distinct kinds of communities are in human societal life. And what the uh, concept of sphere sovereignty tries to emphasize is that each of these has its own unique character and you could think about it, its own jurisdiction, right? Its own delegated responsibility for certain kinds of societal organization, certain kinds of societal life together, the things that they're responsible for taking care of. And uh, civil governance should be strictly limited to administering civil justice. And then let's say we have a host of quote unquote social problems, economic problems, whatever, however you want to characterize them, moral problems. Okay, those can all be dealt with through these other communal means, right? So there's, so society itself is not a single thing. It's not one unit with, you know, in a, in a pyramid form with the state at the top. That's not the image you want in your, in your mind. What you want is a whole bunch of sort of uh, concentric uh, or overlapping circles, as it were, uh, or interpenetrating spheres or something where uh, they're cooperating together according to their own principles of self-governance and they can together, and it's really through what we would call uh, spontaneous order, right? It's mm -hmm. not managed through central planning. This kind of right. harmonization, societal harmonization is emergent. It comes out of a kind of normative operation, not centrally coordinated. Uh, sure. So independent coordination. Um, and so... Right. The, if the state or whatever civil governance there is leaves their hands off economic exchanges and the means of those exchanges and so on and so forth, whatever's not a matter of coercion, society has its ways of working those things out. Mm -hmm. Social, moral problems those can all be dealt with through non-coercive means. And we're going to find, surprise, surprise, that's the best way. That's the best alternative we have to deal with those problems. Yeah. Yeah, and it's amazing because it almost seems do. like things have been co-opted or turned on their head with um, so much of the authoritarian left, um, you know, as I'm going to characterize it, just taking over all of these spheres that you had mentioned and that we've been discussing. Um Perhaps, and I'm not I'm not conflating, you know, all of the left with with atheism, but perhaps when you make the state your god, or when you get away from any mention of a god, um, you know, or normative or objective morality, normative rules, perhaps then you get this creeping totalitarianism where, you know, the, call it social justice, you know, and it leads to cancel culture and the, you know, this this totalitarian everything within the state. Twitter working for the state, Facebook working for the state, censoring people who say things that are rude or saying things that are, quote, misinformation. Maybe that's what we're seeing a little bit of, bit of right now. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. We're, we're getting this total takeover of these yeah. spheres, which used, used to not be the, um, the playground or the jurisdiction of the state. Well, yeah. and, you know, it's, it's very easy to think that the source of law and order is the state. And I remember an interview, I think it was with Lee Schooland about her experience in uh, communist China under Mao. And now uh, I, I tear up whenever she talks. I know. It's so incredible. She's, She's got great stories. I love her. 
She does. But she says this, she said that Mao had this belief that God created a chaotic world and that it was the job of the state to bring order to it. And um, I think it's very interesting because if you talk to some Christians who hold what Gregory called the default view of Romans 13, they're basically saying the same thing, that God created chaos and that it's our job to create order. Um, And more specifically, it's the state's job to create order. And when you have that mentality, it's very easy then for the state to creep in and monopolize all the spheres of society because all the spheres of society are, in their view, inherently chaotic and needs to be Mm -hmm. brought under the control and order of the state. And so, yeah, I think that's, I I think it's it's to nuance that, but it's, yeah, go ahead. Well, to, to, to nuance that in a little, uh, a little bit further, they might say, well, no, we don't, we don't think, you know, God created a chaotic world, but you know, we're fallen, we're sinful people and depraved. So we have to have, you know, authority. And for them that translates into basically an authoritarian totalitarian vision. Someone's in charge of society, some crazy idea like that. And, uh, that's leaving out the understanding of what in the reformed tradition we call common grace, right? So after Adam and Eve sin, God does not immediately bring the final judgment and send them to hell. And that's the end. That's not what happens. (laughs) We have the introduction of saving grace, but along with saving grace comes a what we call a common grace it's still undeserved and unmerited favor from god so that's why it's it's grace it doesn't get anybody into uh the new heavens and earth paradise at the end of the world but it doesn't deliver anybody from their sin but it's the kind of grace that preserves the order of the world uh that we see explicitly revealed after the flood, right? So things get pretty bad. God brings a kind of final judgment, but preserves Noah and his family. And then afterwards Mm -hmm. he makes explicit, you know, the, the world scene is going to continue. I'm not going to interrupt it. So cataclysmically again, until the final judgment, at least not through a flood, um, it's this preservation of the world that we understand as God's common grace. And that's essentially what people are ignoring when they're saying uh, the only way we can have order in society is by having some monopoly in charge that otherwise things are going to be chaos. They're, they're not, they're not mm-hmm. going to be chaos other word, you know, without the state. The state is, is an agent of chaos because mm-hmm. of its monopolistic power. Yes. Yeah. It's bringing it's almost chaos question everywhere. Or, yeah. It's like oh, question totally begging is. or circular logic maybe to just say, well, if we wouldn't if we didn't have the state there would be chaos. That that's how we define chaos. It's yeah. like, no, <laughs> no, exactly. hold on there. Time out. Yeah. And uh, Carrie, one, you were going to say thing something. I wanted to, oh, go ahead. Well, one thing I wanted to add about uh you know, the religion of the state is that uh it may it may have many sort of you know there may be many institutions of civil religion so to speak but public education government schools have got to be one of the biggest ones and you know i think our priorities are really end the fed end the wars right but ending public schools has got mm-hmm. to happen if yeah. we're going to nullify, decentralize, secession, bring liberty, mm-hmm. it's got to happen. Yeah. So this, this, the government school system is one of the most pernicious, you know, demonically conceived <laughs> systems yeah. in any country ever, but definitely in the United States. And extremely pervasive. Yeah, that, that's yeah. right. I mean, it sounds radical to say what, what you said, but I... 
you know, since we've adopted this Prussian um, Prussian educational model over the past what hundred and I don't know the hundred and sixty years, hundred and forty yeah, years. That's at exactly least, what it is. Yeah. Um, with Horace Mann and, and whatnot, it's like lining up kids in rows, teaching them weird factoids that they don't need to. They might never use again, you know, and not teaching them how to balance a checkbook or how to start a fire in the woods or, sh- you know, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then putting up little idols, you know, on the wall, these these busts of of presidents, you know, some of whom might have done a great job, some of whom were awful. But, you know, teaching them in this way, in this form has been, I think, extremely destructive to actual um, free thought. You know, and what we would, the type of people, a true education, a classical education that we'd want to be brought into, um, you know, the young and, and yeah. people who are going to grow up to be citizens of a republic, as it were. Yep, totally agree. Um, well, there's there's a lot. Uh, this has been a great discussion so far. I feel like we could have round two and round three, but um, <laughs> I want to respect all of your time tonight. I feel like we just did a did a brief survey of some really interesting topics. Um Lots more to get to, but um, I really want to thank you both for for coming on um, the podcast, and and maybe we'll do this again here in the near future. Um, Really interesting stuff to cover. I I think these topics of if we support liberty um, as Christians, you know, how do we reconcile that? And it's completely reconcilable. But I think we come from a we come from a world, you know, maybe in our country, in our so called society, where those are almost seem to be at odds, and they are not at odds um, at all. I, I think you would agree, and I, I've heard you say as much in your work. But um, once again, your your podcast is Reformed Libertarians, um, and then Dare to Think. Um, th- that's right, Carrie. Yes, Dare to Think. Awesome. Yeah, I would encourage everyone to go go check this out because you're going to get um, really interesting discussions like this, and probably in even more depth. Um, but I really want to thank you both for your time and, and coming on and uh, hope to speak with you again soon. Thank you very hey, much. Hey, thanks, for Greg. Us. And if, um, yeah, if any, I don't, yeah. I don't know where the bulk of your listeners are, but if any of them are interested in exploring more about this reformed Christianity perspective, uh, the perspective that we're coming from and we advocate and that we want to explain liberty in terms of, uh, if they were to look for, let's say, a church uh, with the name United Reformed Church, URC, so any church that might have that in their name, or Orthodox Presbyterian Church, or maybe uh, Presbyterian Church in America, uh, hmm. let me think what else are the other churches, Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, of course there's some Korean uh, Presbyterian or Reformed churches, probably on huh. the West Coast. Uh, any any of those yeah, churches, most of, or most they of can our just are in California. Yeah, yeah, or they can just uh, get in touch with me, tell me where they are, and um, you can find our contact on our website, reformlibertarians.com. If they're interested, I'll, I'll find something close to them. Hopefully, cool. Well, I thank you again both for the for the interesting uh, discussion on uh, on these various topics, and there's lots more to cover. But uh, you both have a have a great day, and I really appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. This has been the California Liberty Project podcast. Make sure to subscribe, share it with others, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter.